which we derived this NOVA index that, that we'll be talking to you about in the next couple yes, minutes. Yes, I hope, because I have lots of questions. I don't know about you. Um, we had a lot of debate about what criteria we would use. Uh, criteria, it's, it's, it's concise, right? We have five criteria, okay, we can... We would can an work? index like this actually help Berlin in thinking about its, its goals? Empowering Cities, a Blueprint for Urban Progress. What makes a city progressive? In the fourth episode of our series, Empowering Cities, our panel debates the Nova Cities Index. So the Nova Cities Index is a blueprint made up of five criteria for how cities can deliver on the promise of progress. In this episode, the authors pitch this blueprint for urban progress to a progressive mayor of a town in Wisconsin and a district councilwoman of Berlin's famous Friedrichshain-Kreuzberg district. Empowering Cities is part of our project, New Urban Progress, a transatlantic dialogue on how to make cities more innovative, green, and for all. The dialogue took place over two international tours, four conferences, and ten cities. The project is made possible by a joint metro initiative of Das Progressive Zentrum, the Alfred Herrhausen Gesellschaft, and the Progressive Policy Institute, supported by the Transatlantic Program of the Federal Republic of Germany and funded by the European Recovery Program of the Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Hi, my name is Diego Rivas. I work on innovative ways to strengthen the transatlantic partnership during difficult political times at the German think tank Das Progressive Zentrum, and you are listening to our podcast, Talking Progress. This episode is a recording of a panel discussion held at the Progressive Governance Summit in October 2022. Our host is Catherine Kluver Asbrook, Executive Vice President at the Bertelsmann Foundation. With her on stage is fellow Maria Willett, Chief of Staff for the City of Rochester Hills, Michigan, and Richard Lawrence Jr., Principal Planner for the City of Alexandria, Virginia. If you listened to the last episode of Empowering Cities, you already know Maria well. I traveled with both her and Richard throughout Germany and the United States for our new urban progress trips. They pitched the Nova Cities Index to me for the first time in Austin, Texas. It's great to see how far it's come. In the course of the episode, they will be joined by Katie Rosenberg, mayor of the U.S. city Wausau, and Julie Richier, a Green District Councilwoman in Friedrichshain-Kreuzberg, Berlin. Now, let's hear from the panel. The host, Catherine, will kick things off before we learn more about the Nova Cities Index and debate if it can guide cities towards progress. I just came back from Amsterdam, and Brian Hansen from the Chicago Council and I were just talking about that. And I encountered there a woman, very impressive woman, who is the mayor of Bogota, and she summarized what you need to do as a mayor and what you need to be as a mayor when you're facing the kind of global challenges that you have today in urban surrounds and at the breaking point to your regions this way. She said, you must be the manager of hope. And you have to deliver through collective action because only then can you empower the individual citizen. And when people feel taken care of, they feel personal responsibility and then they will take care of their democracy. 
And I think it's a nice summary of the kind of ideas that we're seeing emerging as urban power. And those of you that know me or have read my writing know that I look specifically at the interface between the city as it begins to emerge as an international actor and how that interplays with what we might describe as classical nation-state power. And I think where the cities are really defining their own power is effectively among five Ds. And I wanted to share those with you and then reflect that with a panel. A couple things will be obvious to you because you yourselves are likely residents of cities. Demography. We know that by 2050, even though COVID impacted density and the way that we thought about our living together in the urban environment, 68% of this world will be urbanized. There is a massive movement going on across the world. And that cities still remain the anchor points for talent and technology and tolerance. So even when people left megacities, they didn't go to rural regions, they went to other cities. And other cities work to incentivize to get them there. So there's an interesting interurban movement going on. So number one source of power, demography. Second, economic power, dollars. I did this all in Ds, so excuse my Americanism here. Cities drive 80% of GDP growth around the world. The GDP of Paris is larger than that of South Africa. And you know that the cities are out there creating FDI and creating investments in their own surround that sometimes they run both by their capitals, but not always. And when cities don't want certain things to happen on their own watch that doesn't correspond with their values, they vote with their feet. So part of the reason we don't have a transatlantic uh, investment partnership in TTIP is because cities said no. De democracy, and this is obvious to those of us who have engaged in, in neighborhood planning exercises, who interface with our cities using some of the technology apps that have now emerged like 311 and others, but it's because cities are at the forefront of listening to your inhabitants is that all sorts of surveys across the globe where we find democratic backsliding sees the opposite happen in cities. Pew Research found in 2019 that Americans, among now the most divided societies in the world, think that cities are still the laboratories for restoring democracy and civility among Americans from the bottom up. And then finally, or almost finally, data. Cities are now, whether they're doing it through smart city technology or through open data or by working with one another, bringing in an enormous amount of knowledge about how you move through the city, how you interact with one another, what questions you're asking about one another, how you create inclusive systems, how you create climate change knowledge, how you cool a city, how you change water flow. And all of that data is compounding in a new source of ability to negotiate with the nation state for access. So C40, that big, enormous, now powerful network of cities, will always have a seat at every single cop from Paris onward, and they will not leave. And you're seeing this happen as well in the, in the surround of the G7 and the G20, in the U7 and the U20. That is as part, of, a part and parcel of the fact that cities can now prove what works in public policy, and they do that through data. And that brings me finally neatly to this point of why we're all here and why you're gonna hear about why it's so vital to exchange information on the basis of all of that, and that's diplomacy. Cities are connecting with one another on the basis of pragmatism and need, 
on finances, on resources, on solutions around climate change, and some of those big problems. Cities, in my mind, remain the seismographs of our global challenges, but they're also the incubators for the solutions that will help beyond the walls of a city. And they're doing this in a very pragmatic exchange. Think only of the COVID pandemic when among the Visegrad four cities, people were working the WhatsApp to get PPE to their cities when their governments were effectively squeezing out their resources and denying them. Los Angeles did the same and tried to get um, respirators and masks directly from China and elsewhere. They're doing that through networks that they have built over time and they're doing it through networks that they have built purposely to increase their own quality of movement vis-a-vis -vis nation states. So nation states. So those are, in my mind, the five sources of urban power. And we will now discuss with two of our new Urban Progress Fellows, and I will tell you a little bit about the program and I will tell you a little bit about these outstanding individuals, how cities might self-conceptualize of themselves in their internal power and how they might use that as they present themselves to the outside. So as many of you know who follow the work of the Progressive Centrum here in Berlin, the new Urban um, Progress uh, Fellowship is one that brings together transatlantically young new urban leaders uh, from both sides of the Atlantic and not only forge, fo forges their ideas together, but takes them around the United States and Germany. And I'm really pleased to welcome two of the, shall we say, graduates um, of this fellowship program to the stage because not only did they get to exchange ideas together, they came up with a wholly new idea. So uh, Andrew and Maria, I mean, sorry, Rich and Maria, can we have you join us on stage and I'll say something about you as you come up. So Richard Lawrence <laughs> is the principal planner for the city of Alexandria, Virginia. I'm actually gonna be right in your hood next week and I'm looking forward to it. And Maria Willett is the chief assistant to the mayor of Rochester Hills, Michigan, and they will introduce to you a concept that they came up with on fellowship, and then we'll probe just how good it really is. All right. So over to the two of you to introduce us to Nova City. No pressure. No pressure at all. So uh, as Catherine mentioned, we spent the, about the last two years um, traveling across the United States and across Germany, really facilitating a transatlantic dialogue, um, discussing progressive ideas, progressive policies, um, as well as um, just thinking about the future of cities and what that means. Particularly, our subgroup um, was focused on inclusive growth and innovation, and so the lens by which we derived this NOVA index that, that we'll be talking to you about in the next couple minutes really looks through that lens of as cities grow, how can we do so inclusively so that everyone can participate in the success of cities. Um, so in those discussions, we discussed and we often debated what makes a city progressive. Um, and in some cases, we struggled to find a, consens a consistent basis to assess that progress. Um, both in our travels in Germany as well as in the US, we recognized that there was a resounding takeaway from our experiences um, and that there's a shared understanding of what the collective challenges are, but there seems to be um, a not so clear set of requisite actions to meet them. Um, so cities talk about progress, and we've heard this a few times during the day. They talk about the progress, but actually seeing the actions is, is sometimes hard to find. And so we started to think about um, how do you achieve a progressive agenda um, that cities can 
have to make bold as well as achievable um, outcomes to fulfill their progressive um, agendas. So we look to the heavens, we look to the stars, so to speak, and we liken the progress of cities to that of stars, of constellations. Uh, you have some cities that shine bright, like a supernova, um, and then you have others that dwarf, they, they dim and they essentially die out. And those are cities that we hope, that we hope don't come to fruition. And so um, that in itself birthed the concept of what we call the Nova City. It's a blueprint for innovative cities moving forward. Yeah, so as Richard mentioned, um, we had a lot of debate about what criteria we would use, but then we ended up honing it down to five different things to help cities kind of self-evaluate and really look and see if they're achieving their progressive goals, right? So the first one being housing affordability, making sure that 80% of your population at least is not rent burdened, land use and transportation, making sure that when you look at one kilometer within your heavy transit infrastructure or a half of a mile, that you're not creating new single family housing, you're really making it compact and dense. And that also jobs, about 75% of them, are easily accessible within alternative modes of transportation. Um, looking at inclusive innovation and workforce development. Um, how are we making sure that we're creating economic development opportunities for everyone? Open data, making sure that 100% of our data is open to our residents and businesses. And then lastly, digital equity, creating at least um, a digital infrastructure that is accessible to at least 75% of people today with a commitment that in the next five years, it'll be 100% of your population. Um, so based on that criteria, if you have all five of those, you are a supernova city. If you have four of those, you are a nova city. If you have three of those, you're a star city. If you have two or less, come talk to us after. We'd love to help. <laughs> So we talk about uh, setting aggressive targets, and as Maria mentioned, 80% seems like a, a very uh, high target. And, and as we consistently found in German cities, as well as US cities, and I'm sure across the globe, housing affordability and availability is a major challenge that cities are facing of how to meet the needs and ensure that people can maintain to live within cities as the epicenters of jobs and, and talent. And so uh, as we thought about that, um, we, we recognize that housing is, it's a, it's a social issue, certainly, but it also is a, a participatory issue, issue for residents. The more people are concerned about where they're going to live, how they're going to pay for where they're going to live, um, limits their ability to actively participate in government. And so it marginalizes the ability for people to engage and participate in governance. And, and as we think about inclusive growth, we need to encourage more participation from people. And so how do you address the housing affordability uh, for the rent burden population? We think um, it needs to kind of meet three S's. Um, it needs to meet supply, stability, and then subsidy. Um, the supply can be addressed and encouraged through land use policies that encourage density, as well as the provision of affordable units as densification occurs. Um, we think stability needs to be encouraged through programs such as rent stabilization um, and rent control where both politically and economically those are viable, um, as well as pr uh, providing eviction protection programs for those who are most vulnerable in populations, as well as subsidies, and those should be a blend of direct subsidies to um, residents um, who need support for housing, as well as capital subsidies that should be used to support um, economic development for the production and supply of housing through builders, nonprofit uh, agencies, and then funding for support services to support the most vulnerable uh, and those are, that are most, most prone to housing um, inavailability. 
Yeah, and then so next we looked at inclusive innovation and workforce development um, with a couple different things in mind. One, we all remember when in the United States everyone was competing for Amazon and we found out that is not a model that necessarily works anymore. We want to focus on different things. So if you're a Nova City, we really want you to focus on upskilling your workers so they're ready for the market today, right? Creating those um, different training opportunities. And that really takes continual maintenance, right? Because the world is changing and we have to make sure those opportunities change as well. And then creating opportunities for entrepreneurship, right? Um, and making sure that specifically to include that inclusive aspect um, that we're either committing funds or dedicating support to women and minorities specifically. And then going into um, open data, you know, we talked about 100% of that data being open and free to everybody. Um, that's important to us because it creates transparency and accountability, but not just that, it's really creating this unique infrastructure for innovation and entrepreneurship because if I'm a resident, but I have, I wanna create a business, I can look at that open data, I can see where maybe the problems exist in my community, I can see where the gaps are, and then I can create that solution. So it doesn't just have to be the city creating innovation, it can be our own people. Um, and both of those aren't something that necessarily cities can do alone. It takes partnerships, right? It takes getting involved with your businesses, being involved with your education systems, your uh, vocational systems, um, and other partners. So it's not just cities. It's everyone coming to the table and being involved in that. And then the one thing I want to mention just is a really cool example for open data. Um, there's a program in Colorado called Go Code Colorado. And they've done it for several years now. They've had 5,000 teams and individuals participate. And the idea is that you come to this month-long competition, they show you all of their open data that they have, and then you can either create a dashboard that addresses business issues that they have in that local business community, or you can create your own business, and then they take the top winners and they support them um, with funds. Probably the most dense of these topics is land use and transportation. <laughs> and so uh, we've heard the term dense. And so Inova City essentially is compact and dense. And defining that was a bit of a challenge for us because density per se is uniquely um, characteristic to the size, the scale of the city, as well as the, the context, whether it's an American city or a European or German city. 29,000 per mile in okay. New York City, just so we understand density. Exactly. So as we talk about land uses, um, um, and we mentioned it briefly, we think for the future of cities, there's just no provision for, or there should be no provision or allowance for single family um, housing, the production of new single family housing in cities within a, uh, a half mile or one kilometer proximity to highly uh, dense transit corridors. Um, we really just don't see a sustainable carbon future for uh, cities by, by allowing that. And I think um, as we collectively think about mo mobility and infrastructure, that cities essentially have to and should be embracing uh, density. To make cities innovative and inclusive, uh, mixed-use development is also crucial. And uh, to support those systems, I think there are a few indicators. I think when we define mixed-use, we're, we're, we're defining it as about 40% of that use should be non-residential to support other commercial activities of, of city life. Um, density and zoning, uh, as, as mentioned before, and then critical infrastructure around transit and transportation. Um, and this all funneled into the idea of creating a 15-minute city, uh, where citizens have access within 15 minutes uh, to jobs, to employment, to parks, uh, to social infrastructure and services, uh, healthcare, as well as quality public education. Um, the mix of uses is also essential to uh, innovation and inclusion, uh, and we believe it's a key driver to creating not just an uh, innovative city, but also a happy city.
And right, we want to make sure that residents feel like they're, like you mentioned, taken care of and supported, and, and in turn, they support their democracy. Um, so that 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 happy city is walkable. It's, it creates short distances to, to points of uh, impact, to green spaces, high-quality urban design, uh, supports personal interaction, vibrant neighborhoods. All of those contribute to the safety and the well-being of residents within cities. And then lastly, we did not want to um, not address, but a Nova city must have a clear path to addressing the climate crisis. Building energy and transportation are the two main factors that contribute to carbon emissions. And so for the future of cities, cities need to think about how to practically address energy consumption as well as the energy transition by potentially establishing performance requirements above what the standard building code may be to achieve uh, the carbon and energy requirements for a carbon neutral future, as well as supporting transportation. And when I say transportation, I'm not talking about the expansion of highways that support outer ring suburbs. I'm talking about public transport that will mitigate and reduce the, the amount of single occupancy vehicles that people feel the need to own, but rather can be supported by infrastructure that will get them to where they need to get to um, without the use of a car. And then our last one is digital equity, right? We all saw this as a very critical issue with the digital divide, especially in education. But going even beyond that, being digitally literate is an employable skill, right? It is really important if you need to go to the doctor and you don't have an easy way to get there, you can do it via telehealth now. It is a way that businesses can use social media, um, use digital marketing, can access different resources and grants online through their government, really only online. Um, there's so many reasons why we'd want to know that people in our communities have that. Um, and there's a couple different ways that cities are approaching it. So one, we visited Chicago. They just recently started the um, Digital Equity Council. So they're actually going to all their neighborhoods and talking to people about how they can make it more digitally inclusive, what resources they need to provide and what neighborhoods. Um, but then also a really unique one that I absolutely love is in Shreveport, Louisiana, Mayor Adrian Perkins, he's great. Uh, he actually has sensors on his garbage trucks that saw where they had Wi-Fi in their community and where they didn't. And they were actually able to use that information to secure grant funding to put it in places where they needed it most. So when we talk about next steps for this, this concept, um, we understand that in choosing these criteria that we inherently leave out some elements that some may believe should be um, included to address an incredibly complex challenge of uh, urban development and municipal governance. Um, however, to achieve these actions that we mentioned, we believe that the goals and the metrics in the Nova City Index should be um, encoded within regulatory structures, uh, policies, and other um, tools to oper operationalize these va values into actual action. Um, that can be achieved through ordinances, through resolutions, as well as inclusive bylaws um, that reflect the organizational reform, um, the program development and delivery, as well as the initiatives that um, um, reinforce progressive ideals. But self-governance of cities doesn't happen naturally. Um, we think uh, it's critical that it needs to be institutionalized, and one way of doing that is for cities to essentially create um, offices or work with nonprofit partners to assess their, their performance in achieving these metrics. Um, it's easy to say we, we have a goal, but we have no standard of measuring if we achieve them, or we have no accountability to actually achieving them. Um, Lastly, and, and kind of the, the theme of this conference, cities must recognize that they are not alone uh, and embrace partnerships with other cities, not just within their own borders, but also internationally and truly join forces towards a progressive future. 
Um, and then the last kind of next step as we think ahead, we think this index should be tested. Um, there are a lot of smart people in this audience. There's a lot of think tanks and research institutions. We would love for this concept to be kind of applied um, to see um, how cities fare up to this expectation of a really ag aggressive and progressive um, set of, of future. And so that is a, a challenge that we think would be important to provide some critical feedback, some findings, some recommendations to further refine this criteria and, and advance these progressive ideals. Well, we're going to go into part of that discussion right now with two urban leaders who I'm going to bring to the stage right now to reflect uh, critically on this, I hope, because I have lots of questions. I don't know about you. Um, but let's bring Katie Rosenberg to the stage. She is the mayor of Wausau, Wisconsin. Please welcome... Katie to the stage. And then also joining us for German perspective is Julia Richier, um, who is the district councilwoman for Friedrichshain-Kreuzbach and an advisor to the German Ministry for Environment, Nature, Converse, uh, Conservation, and Nuclear Energy, and was previously, and I think she'll speak from this role primarily, the policy advisor for the city of Berlin on international relations and climate change. So welcome women to the stage. I have a lot of questions for these two people next to you. Not least, starting with this idea of the density is an absolute good. Uh, we just came through a pandemic where people felt the density was the killer, uh, literally. Um, and so these two individuals and their concept would like to pack us all into non-single family living um, and think that that's, uh, that's uh, the music of the future. Katie, how does that sound to you? Well, so I come from Wausau, Wisconsin. It's population 40,000, uh, right in the middle of a very rural area. Um, so, you know, this is actually a discussion we're having. Uh, folks thought that um, coming to our area was great during the pandemic. We have a state park right there. Uh, we have lots of access. Um, but, you know, we can't fit everyone we need to in our city. We are kind of landlocked, so we do need to build up. So I would, get, I would give you, yes, we do need more density. Um, it's definitely a, a participatory discussion here that we're having. Um, but I, I would agree with that, and I think we, we've seen now that we need more people working than ever. <laughs> so I would agree with this. And then can I just point out that what these two have mapped out in the American context is a revolution of the very foundation of American cities, because you'll remember that American, the concept of American cities was anchored originally in the idea of sprawl. And of course, you want to get out and you want to build uh, suburbs, and you know, suburbs was where um, the American middle class lived. And, and what you're suggesting is you have to build a city, uh, both through incentives um, to bring people back into the city and fundamentally change behavior. Because for the longest time, Katie, and I'm sure that that's true in Wausau, people wanted their single family home and their yard and the status that comes with all of that. And you're guys, you are asking through the index of people entirely change what they see as their own personal status symbol. How do you, how do you see that yeah. going? And we, 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 we saw this challenge on our tour as well, particularly in Austin, where um, people want the um, amenities of city life, yep. the convenience of city life, but they still want to hold the values of suburban living. They want their single family, mm -hmm. single family home, they want their individual cars, and the two ideologies just don't converge mm -hmm. in a sustainable way. And then what did you think about how you would answer that? <laughs> because that seems like a pretty pertinent political issue to, right. we discuss, to address. Right, we discussed with the man and their team, um, it, it's a behavioral change, and, and, and that is the challenge, is convincing people that behaviors have to change within cities in order for cities to, one, be sustainable for the future, but also um, that is the trade-off when you move into a city that 
you can't have all these other things. I think it has to be a social compact and a social understanding of how the nature of cities need to operate and the behaviors that are associated with that. So I'm going to go back to Katie, and then I want to bring Julia in. But Katie, um, can mayors do have that discussion on oh, yeah. their own? Like, oh, yeah. how, who do you, what kind of allies do you need in your community well, to, ha to have that behavioral change conversation? So, I mean, when you're talking about demographics, right, when we were just talking about this, that's critical. And when you're talking about, you know, the picket fences, um, we're talking about an older generation. So the younger generations are saying, hey, I don't want that. I don't want to be tied to a house, and we're seeing that. They're moving out. We talk about a silver tsunami, right? Uh, I spent four years of my life working on nursing home policy and not housing policy for a reason. So this is really, um, this is incredible, I think, and I think you need to bring along the next generation. Julie, I want to have you reflect on Berlin in this context more generally, but my ears perked up for two reasons um, when Maria was particularly talking about the digital dimension. Germany has just gone through this idea that uh, public contracts need to be re-signed in paper, so in some regard we're moving backward, and this entire idea that we have a digital infrastructure that allows people not only to move through the city seamlessly, but to be connected in a way that allows them to engage with open data not only in Berlin, but in a fair amount of other German urban environments, is that going to be a very difficult goal to achieve? So would an index like this actually help Berlin in thinking about its, its goals on the digital front, on the housing front? Yeah, I think the, um, what I really like is how you're combining social, environmental, and, and the, the digital and, and, and data perspective. And definitely there is, um, um, you presented how data can help you know for cities it's, and it's also combining those different aspects that really help so for instance if we look at the impacts of climate change to cities then um we don't want to address only climate change we want to address also the the social inequalities and and for instance when we see how in berlin we have droughts and heat waves and um, that there are vulnerable groups that are particularly um, affected by it. We would want to know where actually do those vulnerable groups live, right? So we know it's particularly elderly people, it's uh, people with chronic diseases, but where do they actually live? And then we have that problem about uh, old buildings, people living in the fifth floor, often people that have less, um, uh, that cannot afford maybe living in a new building and they will be particularly affected. But then we need the data actually to help us, you know, identify and then provide the measures. And this is something that I think in Germany, we, this is a challenge, right? So it's not only data protection, but it's also um, how do we provide the data and how can we address it um, in a fair and equal way? So you talk a little bit about in the German context. So Maria mentioned uh, this Colorado example and trying to get grants from different sources of public and private funding. That's something that's very unique in the U.S. context, that cities in Germany can't do that in the same way because we have a different federal structure. So can you talk a little bit about how um, potentially using almost a competitive index like this, where you're sort of pitting cities against one another, might help in your negotiations for the kind of resources that you would need to do that work? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the what, what I really like about the criteria, it's, it's, it's concise, right? We have five criteria, okay, we can, we can work with that. And as I said, you have social aspects, social, uh, housing affordability, huge problem for Berlin, <laughs> and especially from, for the district where, which I'm representing today, which is Friedrichshain-Kreuzberg, the densest, densest um, district of Berlin, and uh, we have uh, also the most concealed district with 70% is stone and concrete, right? So in terms of environmental challenges, it's 
huge. Um, and as, as you're rightly saying, we have this incredible amount uh, of problems um, linked to, to resources, right? So you mentioned as a second point, dollars and money, and um, this is our biggest uh, challenge, right? Where do we get the money from? And um, this is also something that I yeah, realized when I was uh, reading the criteria. So basically, um, there were two criteria which I find a little bit contradict themselves. Um, so you mentioned economic development and at the same time housing affordability. And giving a very concrete example, you know, a couple of kilometers away from here, um, there is the new highest building of Berlin that is being built, which is the Amazon Tower. We spoke also of Amazon. <laughs> and um, the Amazon Tower is going to be 140 meters high, uh, bringing 3,400 highly skilled workers to Warschauer Straße, which is, as I said, just um, a couple of kilometers away, um, highly skilled, excellently paid, in the, in the middle of a very vibrant district. And basically, companies are using public infrastructure Right? They are using that it's, uh, they, they are advertising it on the website, right? The most vibrant uh, areas of the city, uh, excellent infrastructure. But what is their contribution actually to, to, public, uh, to, to our public services that we are providing? So I think this is a huge challenge we should look at. How can we better combine you know, this economic development and also the negative consequences that come with it? I mean, there are a lot of people that are afraid of that. Negative externalities, everyone's favorite economic topic. So Richard, Maria, we're gonna go back to you to reflect on what these two women have told you could work or could not work. So a good example, and by no means has Alexandria or Arlington figured it out, but we also competed for the, uh, the Amazon expansion that was nationwide, Maria mentioned. We won. Uh, our region won the 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 deal right to secure Amazon within uh, that region. A part of that deal took some state um, partnerships, took some um, local regional partnerships between the city of Alexandria and the county of Arlington, um, and it was multi-tiered. And when you talk about um, what is the private entities, um, what is their role in kind of paying for that? There were. Part of the deal, I'm sure there were tax incentives to getting Amazon in Arlington and then, but as part of the overall package that we created as a joint partnership um, were educational um, components. So the state put in hundreds of millions of dollars to um, uh, procure funding for STEM education to ensure that we can um, create a pipeline of workers beginning from pre-K through the uh, K through 12 system who are already there, right? Um, we, also, we, talk, we talk about workforce development, working with the local workforce and vocational schools to upskill the talent to make sure that we have a pipeline of workforce that can support, if it's not necessarily the high-skilled wage jobs that are created directly by Amazon, the third and fourth order effects that of, of jobs that are brought to the area to support those industries. Um, and then when you talk about public investments, um, part of the partnership, Amazon had to make significant investments into local um, housing affordability programs, as well as investments to transportation funding to support the critical infrastructure to move people throughout the region. So um, we have not figured it out and we're in the throes of implementation, but we've established the groundwork, realizing that it's a partnership between the local government, the state government, as well as the private side to um, address some of these challenges um, that are the, the effects of economic development and ensuring that it can be as inclusive as, it, as, as possible. Maria, did you want to... I did want to mention something about the paper management thing, because that's fascinating to me. There's just so many issues with that, even from a small city like mine. Um, 
you know, if, if something happens to your building, if there was a natural disaster and it's nothing but paper files, the paper files are gone. We're probably not getting those back. And that happens every once in a while. Um, you know, you, it's really hard to upload all those things. And then, you know, legally, at least in America, we have record management issues like every um, five years, I have to get rid of those records. So if they're all paper, the chances of someone actually going through and getting rid of those are less likely. Um, so I strongly encourage <laughs> digital as opposed to paper for several reasons. Well, you know, the, the, the cyber folks would say, look, you know, you, you can hack all those lines all the way, you know, you can hold a city hostage, you can do all sorts of things, you can ransomware, if you have paper in the basement, you have paper in the basement, paper, paper's not going away. <laughs> is that a good know. trade-off? <laughs> well, but I think this is exactly where we find ourselves, and, uh, you know, these are, these are the kind of decisions uh, we're going to have to make. The, Index, and I want to go back to this, Nova City is, you're adding a competitive element here. And if I learned one thing from serving, I was just saying this to Brian, if I served one, learned one thing from serving on the Truman um, Center Task Force on City and State Diplomacy and having lots and lots of city managers in our calls was the city managers will tell you, I don't have time for that. I don't have resource for that. I have to focus on exactly what's in front of my nose and not be engaging in, you know, doing things for comp competition's sake, or that I can get a gold star on my lapel. I'm exaggerating a little bit for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, th th that will only help so much. So to the two of you, and I mean, we've seen in plenty of examples, you know, there's an entire, a billionaire mayor has made an entire business on the idea that cities should compete with one another for his money, all right? We won't mention any names. Um, I think we know who you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I used to work for the man. So, um, so point is, is that helpful or is that not? Or do cities so need to focus on their daily and their surround in the German context, the federal components of, um, do the, is this a, can this be really a tool that you can deploy or how would you negotiate just in the political reality in which you operate, how something like this might help you? Right. So I guess maybe uh, I, first of all, I, I am blind reacting to this because that's what I was told I should do. So um, as I'm listening to you, I was interpreting it more as a competition with the self, right? You are trying to rise up and also a rising tide. If I do this, I want the city to the south of me doing this too. I want us to be in this together. So I guess maybe I interpreted it a little bit differently. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think access, I think all of this is really important for us to be discussing um, as a region um, and especially for a place like Wisconsin, uh, there's not enough of us to sit here fighting with each other over our resources. We have to pull together. We have to work together. So it, does, that, does that help? Does a competitive frame wanting to become a Nova Star city, is that, is that, does that help or hinder your progress? So as, as you mentioned before, I worked for the city of Berlin, and, and I actually worked a lot with C40 cities um, as a international, um, yeah, responsible for international relations. And it's, it's true that, you know, uh, cities like Paris, you know, with Anne Hidalgo as a mayor, um, doing incredible work on, 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 on climate, uh, on, on bringing the city forward. You know, this is inspiring, definitely. But then it's true also that we have so many problems ourselves um, and, and we also have a lot of goals. And for instance, um, so 
Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot. I, I think dense areas, and especially capitals in in Western countries, we we most of those criteria we are already, you know, that we are working and working on it, right? Land use and transportation. I mean, we have a law since 2018 in Berlin where we actually already decided we don't want multimodal uh, transportation. We we are gonna favor. Um, transportation that is by foot, by bike, or uh, by public transport. So we already made the choice in Parliament that we do not want to favor cars anymore because we are a dense city, because it makes sense, right? Um, uh, so, so, so happy to hear you, your views on that. But basically, being a dense city brings a lot of advantages and a lot of disadvantages, right? I mean, as I said, very densely sealed, so we have that problem with that all the, our trees are dying down, and then we, we're going to have this problem with heat waves and people's breathing, and, you know, I mean, there are a lot of issues connected to it. And... Um, and I'm, I think also, you know, uh, what I'm also a bit missing in this criteria, which at least f is, this is something we are really working a lot on um, in Friedrichshain Kreuzberg and in, in my district, but also I think in Berlin in general, is this inclusiveness aspect that you mentioned. But, but I think I would go a bit further, you know, inclusive in terms of um, accessibility, for instance, for dis disabled people, but also inclusiveness in terms of gender, gender equal concept, you know, embracing basically new concepts which arise from, you know, people living together in a closed space and always developing it. Um, you know, like, I don't know, currently we're discussing uh, how to bring missoirs and, uh, and unisex toilets and um, all kinds of very different um, aspects. And also maybe the culture of memory as a last point. I think this is, for instance, something um, also linked to inclusiveness, right? But we are renaming our, our streets and our places because we want the appropriation of citizens, right? You mentioned in your keynote speech empowerment of, of citizens, so we discuss this a lot as well. Um, yeah, so... How can we work with it? Yeah, we, this is a really good basis, but also depending on the context you are in, right, you're starting as, um, we are already seeing the problems of all this, right, of the density of, um, uh, of uh, open data of economic development. Katie looks poised to yeah, jump in, yeah. and then we're going to change change the uh, the uh, configuration of this panel. See, I told you we'd keep you awake. So I'm trying not to interrupt, but I, I'm really glad that you brought up the idea of accessibility. That's the point that I made, too. You know, we do have to worry about our elders. We have to worry about language accessibility, especially in the state. You know, I have a city where uh, we are 11% Hmong, which I don't know if everybody knows who the Hmong are, but they fought with the United States during the Secret War in Vietnam. So it's a very different kind of a culture there, and we're still working with um, Hmong elders on making sure they understand and they have access to everything they need. So that's something that is really important, um, really important to me. But I would file that all under accessibility, whether it's we're talking about LGBTQIA+, uh, all the things, whether we're talking about culture, whether we're talking about refugees. Um, I, I think that's really important. Well, I want to thank you both and the entire cohort of New Urban Progress fellows uh, whose insights went into uh, this index. And I think, in general, any tool that can help think through the depth and connectivity of these problems is a vital tool right now. So please join me in thanking these two individuals, Richard and Maria, for their Urban Fellows classes. <laughs>
You can find all three on our website at new-urban-progress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next for Empowering Cities, Episode 5. We need to continue to reinvest in cities as if we thought of them as engines for people's growth and not just a place that a lot of people live in, which is, I think, the prevailing idea of when we... Empowering Cities is a series on how urban spaces can lead the way in inclusive innovation, sustainability, and social justice. This series is part of New Urban Progress, a transatlantic project on the future of cities. This podcast was produced by Das Progressive Zentrum. Post-production and additional recordings by Emma Gaster from Das Progressive Zentrum with music by Armin Mualem. My name is Diego Rivas. Thank you for listening and catch you at the next episode of Talking Progress, the podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces.